check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, Anna Geiger here from The Measured Mom. Welcome to Triple R Teaching. Today we're talking with Wiley Blevins. And if you're familiar with the science of reading, then you've definitely heard his name because he's written so many wonderful practical books about teaching phonics. So today we got to talk about a lot of things. We talked about decodable books, differentiating phonics instruction, syllable types, sound walls, and a whole bunch of other things. It was fascinating to hear more about his background and all the amazing people he's gotten to work with over the years. I know you're going to love this interview. And I've got to say it was the easiest one I've ever had to put together because I didn't have to edit a single thing. He knows exactly what he's going to say. There's no ums. He just gets right to it. And I must have been on top of my game too because I didn't have to edit myself either. So I hope you enjoy. And at the end of the episode, I'll give you a link to the show notes where you can get lots of extra information. Hello, everybody. We are very fortunate today to have the opportunity to talk to Wiley Blevins, an educator, researcher, author who has been known among the science of reading community for being an expert in phonics for quite some time. And today he's going to talk to us about what brought him into education, as well as mistakes that people make about when it comes to teaching phonics and some updates to his Phonics A to Z book that have been made and are are going to be available by the time this episode airs. So welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. I, I got to hear uh, you speak a few months ago in the, at the Reading League event in Wisconsin, but I've also watched many, many workshops online and also own, I think, probably all of your books. <laughs> and um, I've heard you talk about your interesting background where you grew up in West Virginia. Can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood and what brought you into education? Sure. So I'm originally from a very rural community in West Virginia. And I, I like to say that I'm from a legacy of illiteracy because my grandparents on my father's side never learned to read or write. And my grandmother on my mother's side only went to school to fifth grade because after that you had to go into town, you had to have nicer clothes and buy books and things like that. So she just stopped going to school. So I wasn't one of those kids who grew up in a home with all these you know, experiences with books and, and so on. Uh, I was really affected by the fact that I grew up in this environment of illiteracy because I knew I had a sense of what reading was because my, my parents did know how to read, although they didn't do it for pleasure. At least my mother didn't. Um, and I was really uh, attuned to my grandmother's shame about not being able to read. She would make excuses in public, like, oh, I didn't bring my glasses. We all knew grandma didn't wear glasses. Or we'd go to a restaurant. Sometimes she'd hold the menu upside down. And she would always insist on being the last to order. And I was very curious about this because she was the, the matriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. The, the waiter waitress would always ask her first. And she was, oh, no, 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 I'll, I'll be last. My sister finally cued me in. She said, well, grandma doesn't know what's on the menu except what we order. So let's always choose something grandma loves. that was sort of our strategy we would choose grandma's favorite dish so she knew that it was available at that restaurant in fact over the pandemic i started doing some of my genealogy research digging in more deeply and years ago the census would actually record if you were literate or illiterate and on my father's side it's illiterate 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 for generations and generations i'm not entirely sure why so reading was not a part of our lives uh, until my parents went to school and they did finish school so as a young child, I, I really wanted to grow up to teach my grandma how to read. And that's why mm-hmm. I wanted to become a teacher. That was my mm-hmm. motivation as a young child. So I would I had a chalkboard at home and I would pretend like I was teaching <laughs> children how to read. And, you know, I knew nothing about it back then. <laughs> uh, 
but that that was that was really why I became a teacher. So I wanted to be a teacher from a very young age, and that was that was what I wanted to do. So did she ever learn to read? No. Uh, the sad part is when I when I finished college. By that point, my grandmother had Alzheimer's. Yeah. All of her brothers and sisters had Alzheimer's, the entire family. Oh, and so she was hard. not capable of learning to read at that point. Um, but I dedicated my first book to her. And so, oh, cool. you know, she lives on. Yeah. Yes. Well, so what happened that you made it out of West Virginia? I know you went to Harvard. So how did all that work out? So I, I went to, I did my undergraduate work in Ohio to study to become a teacher. And so I, I taught both in the United States and South America. And right away, I knew I didn't know how to teach reading. Mm-hmm. My very first year of teaching was second grade. It was a really panicky feeling. I knew lots about how to create a, a great learning environment and do great centers and what have you. But I realized immediately I had no idea how to teach a child to read. That was my main responsibility. And back then, we didn't have the internet. So yeah, we couldn't yeah. type in and find <laughs> these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, it was a very isolated kind of feeling if you didn't know what to do. And so I was always looking for how I could go back to, to school, to grad school, where I could go to find out how to teach children to read. And so I was lucky enough to get into Harvard and study with Jean Chaw. Oh, yeah. Uh, who wrote Learning to Read the Great Debate. And she mm-hmm. is the one who really helped me understand the process that children go through to learn to read. And it all made sense. When she explained, like, it's just, if we just explain it in the way that teachers can really take advantage of that knowledge, the, the process and the, the, the sort of phases that we go through and so on, it all begins to make sense. And we can really uh, benefit our students far more than what, what is sometimes happening. So my panicky feeling led to me really trying to figure it out. So you were already a teacher and then you went back to school yeah, to get yeah. more. Yeah, I had so- to. That is incredibly an incredible privilege that you got to work with her. I know I've read her book and it's yeah. she I know she wrote that to settle the debate, but right. which still <laughs> rages on. Yes. Um so you knew early on that yeah. an explicit phonics approach was important. Was this a time I know a lot of people I talked to that got their graduate degree just a few years ago were still lear- learning um more mm-hmm. the balanced literacy way, so not an explicit phonics approach. Did you see that happening at the time? Was this unusual that she was talking this way? or? Um... Well, she, she was not in the mainstream during part, okay. of, her, part of her career. Uh, she was very well respected, but there, were, there was a lot of resistance to some of the things. But she was just doing data. She was using research. She, and she had a reading lab at Harvard, and she would watch children read, and she had this intuitive sense about what was going on and what they needed. It was just fascinating to watch her, watch her operate. And then once I finished graduate school, shortly thereafter, I got to work with Marilyn Adams for about oh, five wow. years. And wow. so that, you know, I was, I've been very, very lucky. So that was like five more years of grad school. She had just come yeah. out with her book, uh, uh, Beginning to Read, Thinking yeah. and Learning About Print. And so I was digging into phonemic awareness and even more about phonics. And, you know, it just, I was really lucky early in my career to be attached to people who knew so much about the process of teaching reading. And then years later, I got to work a little bit with Louisa Motes and Isabel Beck and Tim Shanahan. Wow. I've just been incredibly <laughs> fortunate. And I've been, yeah. my feeling has been, um, I just want to be a sponge around these yeah. brilliant researchers and brilliant minds. And so I saw my role very early on as someone who would translate the research 
to try it out in classrooms and really fine tune so that we could scale up that research because not all researchers do that. You know, they right. do the findings that we have to pull together and try it out and see how we can scale it up. And then as I was doing that, I started having my own questions and things that hadn't been answered by the research. And that's what led me to do my own research. Uh, just trying to uncover some things that I needed to know with the children I was working with, or if I was a consultant with the publisher, the questions they had. So we know a lot. There's still more that we need to know. There's still, like decodable text, I do a lot of work in decodable text. There's surprisingly little research around decodable text. Mm -hmm. And so I've done some of it. There's more that I'm doing. There's more that I want to do. So uh, just trying to keep moving forward. So, and that is a wonderful thing about your books, which is why I recommend them so often. And to people who are new to the science of reading, especially because you do have a very wonderful way of translating everything and it's very practical, which Thank is you. what teachers are, teachers yeah. are, teachers are really looking for that. Um, the, could you, I know this would take, we won't talk about all of it, but if you could maybe distill a little bit, some of the wisdom that you learned from Jean Shaw and Marilyn Adams that got you started, and then we can maybe talk about some of the research that you did. Well, it was really so basic. I mean, basically, the concept was we have an alphabetic language. We have an alphabet. And these letters by themselves and together stand for sounds. And if we teach children those basic letter-sound combinations, they have access to a huge percentage of English words. So why would we not give them that information? And it's not only information that's necessary to read, but also to spell, understanding right. how English words work. And so we often forget about the encoding piece when we're talking about the, the phonics or decoding piece. And so that, and I remember, and I've said this in a lot of my presentations, you probably remember me talking about my first grade teacher, Mrs. Warshaw, how <laughs> we had Dick and Jane, but she also gave us a phonics workbook and she explained it that way. We have these letters. I'm going to teach you the sounds they stand for. You're going to be able to, it was so exciting. It felt like a puzzle. She taught it like a system. I understood how the system worked and I ran with the system and I even talk in my presentations how because I was a great observer of words and she really set that up, I started learning sound spellings before she taught them. Yeah. And that is, you know, phonics, if you teach it like a system, can be very generative and very, very powerful. So it's not just, you know, teaching the sound spellings, but also creating an environment where children are talking about words and observing words and noticing commonalities across words. All of that is important and becoming a really strong reader and writer. I, you know, the phonics instruction that that I like is really fun. It's active, it's engaging, it's thought provoking. Children are doing things and they're talking about words and what have you. I, I think some people who are not necessarily fans of phonics see it in sort of an old traditional boring kill and drill kind of way. And it really isn't. And it doesn't have to be that way at all. Well, speaking about that real quickly, you know, you talked about it is basic once you, it, it makes perfect sense. So mm -hmm. how, how do we get so off track? where um, a lot of teachers have been told, you know, use phonics as the last resort. We don't want to, you know, overdo it. Like, how did that happen, in your opinion? <laughs> Honestly, I've never really understood that because I feel like I, the messaging, when I hear people talk about it, is very romantic. We want kids yes. to love books <laughs> and we want to love, and everybody wants that to happen. But they will love books and love reading when we teach them how to do it. And mm -hmm. so I... I've worked with other researchers who are, are more from that mindset. And whenever I would hear them speak and look at their work, I always thought they must be working with children who already know how to read when they come mm -hmm. to school. It just never mm -hmm. made sense how kids got from point A to point B. We don't teach them the basics. It yeah. just, I never understood 
how that was going to work for so many children. You know, I was a kid who came to school with very, very limited literacy back, background. We had one book in our right. home. I talk about it. We had the Bible. <laughs> and I talk about how in our Bible, you know, we had pictures of, of family members who had died in their casket. And so I was afraid to open it because they were dead. <laughs> Right. So like I had no book experiences prior to school. I depended on the public school to do everything I needed it to do. And public schools are capable of doing that. But we really have to be committed to doing all the things that children need to become skilled readers and writers. And of course, we want them to love reading and we want these rich literacy experiences. But along the way, we have to teach them the basic tools to have access to it. You know, I see access to books as access to the world of possibility. Yes. And so for me, it's really, really important that we do it well early on and we, we give children all the tools that they need. So as you um, came out of your work with, with um, Jean Shaw and Marilyn Adams, what are some questions you still had and what's some research that you've done? Well, I started doing a lot of research on decodable text because back in 2000, I was doing some consulting with a publisher and they were doing reading programs for California and Texas. And it was the first time in a long time that uh, that uh, states had required decodable text be a part of their reading program. And California said they need to be 75% decodable and uh, Texas said 80%. And the publisher was like, well, why would it be different if it's research-based? And here again, this is, you know, we didn't have much internet and what have you back then. So I went back to Harvard and had lunch with Jean Chaw and said, I'm looking for this research. I can't find it. She said, well, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean it doesn't exist? These state departments of education are saying do X and Y. She's like, well, you know, they made it up. So, but, you know, publishers have to do what they say until someone does the research and basically said, you have to do the research. And that's mm-hmm. really what led me to uh, look at all the research on decodable text, which there wasn't. So I did my first study here in New York City was just what's the impact Codable Text has on reading growth for our beginning readers in terms of reading, in terms of spelling, and in terms of motivation to read. And so I had I set up a study where all the, the teachers were teaching the exact same phonics lessons the same day. The only difference is what they read. One group read the Codable Text, one group read Pattern Text. So I was able to show both groups made progress. That was an interesting thing. It wasn't that everyone who read decodable text learned and everyone who read pattern didn't learn. Both groups made progress, but it was the group with decodable text made significantly more progress faster. And for mm-hmm. me, it's about the efficiency of our teaching. We have a very short window to teach these basic skills to get them firmly rooted, mastered, so that children can transfer them to all reading and writing experiences. So anything I can do to accelerate that learning, I want to. And decodable text is just a tool. It's a practice tool to get mm-hmm. to mastery quickly and have lots of opportunities to transfer the skills. So you have it as one of your key tools that you can use to access words as you move forward. So, you know, I've done it. And then I started doing, started being, you know, becoming really sort of a, an evangelist for decodable text. <laughs> and I would travel mm-hmm. around and teachers were like, I hate decodable text. I'm not using <laughs> stories. And I was like, really? Cause I always had a really great set that I loved. And uh, so I started, then I did research on all the decodables that were out there and found there were a lot of huge mistakes publishers were making. There were reasons why teachers hated these books. There were reasons why kids couldn't understand these stories. So that research led to me sharing with publishers, you know, avoid these issues. These little books should be as beautiful and well-written as any level book or trade book you have in your classroom. There's no Mm -hmm. excuse for lower quality. 
So we're kind of in that phase right now where there's still a lot of really poorly created decodable text out there and people aren't doing with decodable text what they need to do. One of my big concerns as we transition to using more decodable text, there aren't enough in classrooms around the yeah. scope of students. Yeah. Publishers need to create many more. So if we aren't having kids read a ton, <laughs> this phonics instruction isn't going to stick. It's in the application right. where the learning sticks. So we need more of them. And we need to do more things with them. A lot of teachers who haven't used decodable text sort of, I, I sort of jokingly say they think of them as unicorns. You know, they do all these rich experiences with level books and have for many years, they get a decodable text, they don't know what to do. They just kind of have to read them and maybe reread them. So part of my training is to look at all the things that we can do, not only with decoding and fluency, but what about vocabulary? What about writing? What about syntax? What about comprehension? What about early reading behaviors? And show them the wealth of it of literacy experiences we can have with these very simple texts. They should be as richly used as any other text that we have. And so that's sort of where I am now, trying to get that message out so that these texts really have the impact they need to have. Yeah, well, I know I've, I've heard you talk a lot and I've read your books about things to look for in decodable books. Can you share some of the things that are kind of a warning sign that maybe you shouldn't go with these books? Well, yeah. So first of all, I'm, I have a very high bar for beauty. <laughs> I want them to be interesting looking and engaging and well crafted. You know, they great photographs or great illustrations. I know not everyone has the, the beauty bar that I have, but I really think they should be gorgeous and kids should be excited when they pick them up. But there, there are a lot of issues. One, uh, publishers, what happened, interestingly, and this is a very common thing in education, we have a really great idea. Let's have a really strong practice tool called decodable text. And the state said 75, 80. We don't know if that's the right percentage because there's no percentage, but okay, this is what we have to do. Fine. But what publishers did is they got very competitive. So they're like, well, if the state says 75, we'll do 100 or we'll do 95. We'll be better than the 75 decodable. We don't know. But what we know is that these texts that were 9,500 made no sense. They didn't sound like English or, and we don't, you know, when you're learning to read, you're trans transferring your oral language into print. So they need to sound like English and use yes. English sense construction. There are a lot of decodable texts that aren't English. I work with a lot of multilingual learners. You're trying to teach them to read in a language and the sentences don't sound like the language they're trying to learn. Mm -hmm. It just is not acceptable. The other thing is they, they started loading in tons of words, these weird words just to get more decodable opportunities. So there'd be words like rut and vat and bin, you know, things that children wouldn't know. And it just was a mess. They couldn't make any sense of it. And the whole point of reading is to make meaning. You know, we're going to sound mm -hmm. these out and talk about them and talk about what they mean and write about them and what have you. Um, one of the big issues I have with the state adoption criteria is any word that can't be fully sounded out counts against you in your decodability count. So the word mm -hmm. the is the most common word in English. It counts against you. Yeah. So, so, you know, publishers will write these books and they'll have too many thes. So they have to take them out. So it doesn't sound like, like we have to be more realistic about there's nothing magical about 75 or 80. We don't even know if that's correct. So let's have text that's highly decodable, a really great practice tool, but it sounds like English. And it makes sense, and it's a fun read. We just have to loosen up a little bit and be more realistic about what children need in these texts. So there are many people um, in the science reading community who really feel very strongly that yeah. the text should be almost 100% decodable, except for those high-frequency words you've taught. Shouldn't yeah. ever introduce anything. Yeah. So like, for example, I write decodable books for my website that I give away, and 
from early on, I use the ED ending, even though it hasn't been explicitly taught because mm-hmm. I don't like it when it says did hit it or, oh, or whatever. It's so common. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's a bad example because you don't say hit it, but anyway, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Um, and I feel like the teacher can just tell them because they want to make it, we need to make it sound like a book. That's, that's what I would say. But what would you, what would your response be to people who say, well, it's, you can't put words in there at all that they haven't been introduced to. So I've had this conversation as well. There are people who feel very, very strongly. Every word has to be fully sounded out or fully sounded out and some of those high-frequency words. Those high-frequency words are important, by the way. Those are regular words. When I look at the top 250 words in English, there are about 60 that are irregular, like the word the, like what, like who, like they, like you. Children need to learn those right away as well. So never 100% decodable. There's no research to support that, but highly, highly decodable with these high-frequency words. Now, the, the state adoption criteria allows for story words to make the stories more interesting. So they say, like in California, they say 75, now they say 75 to 80% decodable, fully sounded out, and the other, which is about three out of every four words, and the other 20 to 25%, about one out of every four, can be an irregular high-frequency word or a story word. Maybe you want a story about, you know, these animals slipping in mud, and you have a pig and a cat and a dog, which are decodable, but it's really funny if an elephant slips in mud. So you throw an elephant, and the children laugh, and it's really cute, and it's not a big deal. You know, it's the big word that, you know, starts with E. Or maybe you want some, because we're so focused now on content knowledge and building knowledge, you might have a simple decodable, but you want to use a content word, like... Uh, mm-hmm frog that they can't decode yet, or maybe it's a sun, a sun they can do, but maybe it's plant or whatever. So yeah. it's okay to have those. The thing is, is what we do with the words that are in these texts when we're teaching. So if it's full, if it's a word you can fully sound out, I use correct decodable corrective feedback. I'll point out the missound spelling. We'll re-blend the word and then we'll reread the sentence now that we know the word. If it's a, uh, a regular high frequency that are formally taught, then I'll deal with it a different way. If it's a story word, we look at the word. We look at the parts we know. Mm-hmm. And we use all the knowledge we have. And if we can't figure it out, then we look at the illustrations, which a lot of people in the science reading would pass out that I just said that. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to make meaning. And sometimes there's information we can use. We use all the resources to make meaning. And then if the children can figure out, I reinforce it by I will model how to sound it out. And then we'll reread the sentence. So I, I look at the letters and sounds first and we start there. Um, and, and people are afraid, well, if they look at the pictures ever, they're going to start guessing. And it's not true. If the majority of the words they can sound out, that's going to be their primary strategy to attack words. And that's the habit we want to develop. The occasional word to make a really interesting, engaging story isn't going to mess that up. But what it will do is teach them that as they develop as readers, there are going to be some words that they can't figure out. And they are going to have to do other things. And it might be looking in a dictionary. It might be asking the teacher. It might, you know, looking at chunks of whatever. But it really sets up what real reading really is. So it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> and the criteria allows for it. So those words are there. So I would rather the conversation be about how we help children with those words. Like you said, if a teacher just wants to give it, fine. Yeah, well, I, I really pre- appreciate you talking about how you're teaching the habit of looking at the words first. And I think that's really... Yeah. The big differentiator, because for many of us, me included, who taught kids to read using leveled books initially, they sort of went to the picture first. Like they kind of had to do that first letter picture. Um, but when they've got the habit of always knowing we start with the word, the pictures can help. But obviously, 
I mean, if a book is mostly decodable, which is, and they're getting lots and lots of practice, they have to look at the words. So they get used to doing that. When I work with a child I haven't worked with before, the very first thing I do is open a book and see what they do. Do they put their finger on the first word and start working through, or do they scan the pictures? Yes. That tells me they understand deeply that the word, they don't have the tools to tackle the words. And that's really problematic. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of problems in your fresh look at phonics, you talked about um, some, some problems um, when it comes to teaching phonics, some mistakes that teachers make. I'm going to kind of jump to the end of that first. And you wrote um, waiting too long to introduce multisyllable words. Can you talk a little bit about how teachers should maybe approach that even in first grade and, yeah. And be what yeah. you do and don't recommend. So when I was doing that work, this I think started back in around 2010, districts were transitioning to the, the common core standards and looking at all the things they needed to do for these shifts and were evaluating all areas of their font or their reading instruction. And every school I went, they were having issues with foundational skills. And they were like, it doesn't make sense. We have phonics resources. Why is it not working? And I think that's a really important question. If we're doing everything everyone tells us and it's not working, something is wrong. And so I really began looking at instructional materials and watching lots of teachers teach to see what would bubble up to the surface as possible obstacles that we can unplug or remove to really maximize student learning. And the whole thing about multisyllabic words really jumped out at me with second grade. Second grade is a really complex year when it comes to phonics learning. Because in second grade, children have to master all of those skills in K-1, and there's a lot that's covered, you know, short vowels, long vowels, complex vowels, and so on, in one-syllable words. But when I looked at the text that children were reading in second grade, they were filled with multisyllabic words. So the instruction for a huge part of the year was working on mastery of these skills in one-syllable words, and then we'd give kids books where they were tackling multisyllabic, and that mismatch was really tripping up children and causing some of them to kind of shut down. So I, I start at the first week of second grade doing some very easy transitioning to multisyllabic words. So if we're doing short vowel words like cat and run and rat and what have you, I will take some of those words and add word chunks. Maybe I'll add a, a syllable type or I add a prefix or I add a suffix. So we take a word they know and we just slightly go to a harder word. So I'm exposing them to more complex words that they might encounter in their text, but they already know a chunk of it. So it's not so overwhelming. So I think we need to transition much earlier on. We can start having some of these conversations in first grade. So in first kindergarten and first grade, it's like one letter, one sound, one spelling, one sound. And we do that for a very long time. But in the second half of grade one, I think it's really important that we start having children see larger chunks of words so that they're ready to see larger recognizable chunks in multisyllabic words. So I do a lot of things that second half. You know, we'll, we'll work sounding out words, and then maybe we do a sort with spelling patterns, like phonograms. So they start seeing, instead of just, you know, O-A for long O and O-W for long O, they start seeing O-A-T and O-A-K, whatever the, you know, the most common spelling patterns are. So I start doing that kind of work. So we start having conversations about larger pieces of words, so that when we move into longer complex words, they start seeing recognizable chunks. Because the point we want when a child sees a really long word, you know, prefixes should jump out, suffixes should jump out, common um, phonograms should jump out. Mm-hmm. It should be so overwhelming, but we have to get that ready. You know, started the second half of, of first grade and move into second grade in a, a slower transitioning kind of way to, to ease that, that movement toward being able to read longer words. 
In, I think it's Fresh Look at Phonics, you talk briefly about syllable types. And mm-hmm. um, there's, there's so many debates in the science of reading world. Some right. people will say, syllable types, waste of time, too many rules. Yeah. And others say, no, they're really important for reading and spelling. I personally like syllable types. But could you give your perspective on that? Yeah, I do too. I do too. But I, I think some people go overboard with syllable types, which I think is what some of the frustration is. You know, they'll have children mark up words for a very, very long time. It's okay to do mm-hmm. that as sort of a, a scaffold. But the whole point of syllable types is just giving children a tool to chunk words and then mm-hmm. knowing how to pronounce the chunks. Right. I think that's is what's missing in the conversation. It's not that they can state the syllable types and mark them up and do all that. You might want to do that to just, you know, like I said, gain some familiarity, but the whole point is to chunk and pronounce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are just, for me, there's some really good strategies, you know, keeping certain spellings together in a syllable or knowing if it ends in a consonant, it's probably a short vowel sound. All those things are really, really helpful, I think, when we're chunking words. But, you know, one of the things that um, Dr. Kearns talks a lot about is when we teach syllable type, be very flexible. You know, when you model it, model it different ways of chunking because a child doesn't know how to chunk it right away. So, you know, you have to try a couple ways until you get to a word that sounds close to a word you know. And that's kind of the rub with the multisyllabic work is that you can only take these approximations and transfer it to a word you know if it's a word in your speaking and listening vocabulary. So there's been a fair amount of research that talks about students' vocabulary really impacting their ability to tackle yes. multisyllabic words, which is why I, you know, I talk a lot about, even though I'm, you know, I'm brought in to talk about phonics, I always ask, like, what's your read aloud program? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, are you doing these text sets around concepts where there's lots of repetition and vocabulary and deep ideas? Because we need to flood students with knowledge and vocabulary in those first first few years and continue obviously but those first few years so that when they start seeing these words in print they can make those approximations more easily and so we aren't doing that systematically yet and that's a real issue for a lot of our children who you know many children have vocabulary needs so uh, there's just so much in the science of reading for us to talk about and think about and how it works and there's so much room for improvement it's kind of an exciting time. You know, we have a it lot is. of about how to do it better. Uh, yeah. So. Well, people are listening now, including me. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. for a while. So yeah, it, it is a very exciting time. So um, I guess I could talk to you lots and lots about your other books, but I would like to talk about the updates that are coming to your new book or to your fourth edition of Phonics A to Z. Mm-hmm. I saw on Amazon where I pre-ordered it. So I'm recording, by the way, we're recording this in December, but this is going to come out in the spring. So... According to Amazon, the book's supposed to be ready in February. So hopefully by the time people are listening to this, it will be available for purchase or right. to get in your hands. Um, but you're, it said you included something about sound walls. And when I heard you speak in October of this year in Wisconsin, uh, you talked about what bothered you that people were like, I, I, I assume you were talking about sound walls, like covering up the, oh, yeah. the skills, which is what I've been taught to do. Um, and what I've probably mentioned on my website to do before you actually teach them. Can you, hearing you say that was the first time I'd heard someone say not to do that. Can you talk about that a little bit? It comes from a very personal perspective. When you do that, you're assuming no child in that classroom is above where you are at that instruction. And that is a faulty assumption. There are children who are beyond where you are. Who you know? One of the things we often forget our above grade level expectation students in phonics 
you know, our responsibility during a whole group phonics lesson is to have some challenge experiences, words and opportunities, so those children are engaged in getting something out of that whole group. And our responsibility is to find out how much they do know at whatever grade we're teaching. And then during small group time, start them further in the scope and sequence and systematically teach them those other skills to get them as far as they can go instead of ignoring these children. So when you hide information, you're basically telling them, you can't go on, you can't go where you, as far as you can go, and I'm gonna limit your learning. That would have been incredibly frustrating for me as a student. I get why teachers do it to try to focus on what we're learning and what have you, but I personally, it's my preference, and you don't have to you know, have the same preference, but I personally would never do that because I know I have a wide range of student needs in my classroom, and some of that are those students who need to be accelerated. So that's my, here again, I talk about with Mrs. Warshaw, you know, she taught these slow, you know, these sound spellings, you know, at the pace that was required, but I wanted to know more, and I started seeing things in words that um, she hadn't taught. So I remember, I tell the story in one of my presentations where I was in church, and the preacher was reading from the Bible, and there were all these weird words, thee, thou, doeth, and I looked at him, and I was like, oh my gosh, they all have TH. I figured out how to pronounce TH long before we ever got to it. Because I understood how the system worked. Mm-hmm. So allow children to take advantage of that. It becomes incredibly generative if we teach it as a system and we start doing that systematically. Some children will really run with it. And that's a really powerful thing uh, to allow them to do. So that's my bias on that. No, I appreciate hearing that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you want to tell us about Soundwells and, well, and what you've looked yeah, been thinking you know, about? Yeah, at first I was really, really... Um, kind of skeptical. I, I Maybe skeptical is too strong of a word, but I was sort of like, why are we just putting mouth pictures on the wall? You know, mm-hmm. and I understood because a lot of teachers were getting training in linguistics, which is incredibly helpful when you're teaching phonics to know these things. I thought, well, that's, you know, their way of showing they're learning these things and they want to incorporate, you know, things about how we form sounds, which can be very valuable for children to distinguish sounds that are made in similar ways. Because keep in mind, when we're spelling, we're kindergarten, first grader, we're isolating the individual sounds and attaching that to a spelling. And so a lot of children's spelling errors reflect, you know, sounds that are formed in very similar ways. So it's really great information. So, but I was skeptical about just having mouth pictures on the wall. I've always used like the vowel valley when I create scope and sequences. Like I won't choose sounds that are made in similar ways. You know, I won't put them close together in a scope and sequence I, for that very reason. But then I start, started seeing teachers would have the articulation photos and do the articulation work, but then they also had the sound spelling card where the letter was formed and the different spellings and they would add some words, some key words as they were doing. And it became a living, breathing, useful tool, both for instruction and for students when they are working. So the sound walls that have moved in that direction, I think can be a really valuable tool. So I talk a little bit about that in the book. I noticed something else you talk about in your book is your, is the decodable text routine. And I have your book, um, Choosing and Using Decodable Text, which is mm-hmm. pretty recent, I think. And that's yeah. that's a really good one. Is there additional stuff that you're going to share in your new updated version? Yeah. So I, I've included all of that information about how we can do more with decodables and make them more impactful. Like I pre-teach a tier two academic word that we used to talk about the book. It's not in the book. We used to talk about to elevate language. I'm looking for every opportunity to elevate language. I talk about what I do when we revisit the book to develop deeper comprehension and early reading behaviors. I talk about what we do with writing to really give students opportunities. Students always write about the decodables after we read them because it forces them to apply that skill. So it's really great encoding work, 
but it's hard when you're first learning a skill. So the book provides this amazing scaffold that the children mm-hmm. can go back into. Now I've started doing a lot of work around syntax, looking at difficult parts of decodables where we, we connect ideas across sentences, which children, uh, some children find difficult. You know, there could be a sentence with, you know, very explicit nouns and the next sentence will have that replaced with pronouns and some children aren't making those connections. So we stop and say, you know, who is she? Oh, it's Pam. Let's reread that sentence with Pam. Does that make sense? That habit of connecting ideas across sentences, we need to develop in kindergarten and first grade so that when children get to second, third, fourth, and they're, they have these complex paragraphs, they're, they're better at connecting the, those ideas and unpacking those ideas. So I do a lot of work with taking long sentences and chunking them by meaningful parts. So I'll say, who is this sentence about? Oh, it's Pam. What did Pam do? She ran. Mm-hmm. Oh, where did she run? She ran to the bus. So they see different chunks of sentences carry meaning. And then we start creating, after we deconstruct sentences, we construct sentences. So we, we add, you know, ask them questions and we'll, we'll combine sentences and they start seeing how easy it is just by me asking who, what, where, why, they start creating these massive sentences and we start moving pieces around. So they see, you know, book language is different from spoken language. Like all of this can be established, these habits in K and one, so that when they get to two, three, four, five, where they really need to have deep understanding, that language and those habits are in place. We, we're still very silo in our work where we kind of just do what we have to do in K and what we have to do in one and not yes. thinking deeply about how we can plant the seeds for really important behaviors later on. My hope is that we start doing more of that planting seeds work in K1. Yeah, that's, that gives me a lot to think about. Um, you, one thing I like is that you talk about differentiating phonics, phonics instruction. There's yeah. kind of been... I know this is another big, big area of debate. Some people mm-hmm. um, have really switched over completely to whole class phonics lessons, and they really feel that's the best use of time. Others would say, well, I've got kids all over the place. I really want to meet them where they are. And then others would say, well, you really should give a whole class phonics lesson to everybody so everybody can get grade level access, but then you can differentiate. Can you speak about your perspective on that and how to, how to be a good differentiator? So that comes from two things that you mentioned. One, the movement towards more whole group instruction which in almost every curriculum I look at just teaches to the middle. So it doesn't meet the wide range of students' needs. The other thing is for, uh, so I do a lot of work, or I did before the pandemic, I worked with the universal literacy coaches here in New York City. And I would go into a lot of schools where they would assess the students and place them on a phonics continuum and they only receive phonics in small group. And the Mm -hmm. thinking behind that was, well, we will just meet them where they are and, you know, and march them up. But what happened in reality was like, Children would come into first grade, they had mastered some of the kindergarten skills, so they'd be put in that part of the continuum, and they would move very slowly. And so when first grade ended, they hadn't even been exposed to a fair amount of first grade skills, so they went into second grade even further behind. And mm-hmm. we just can't do that anymore. So both have to happen. We have to expose all children to grade level content. Unfortunately, that, unfortunately most of the, the instruction has no differentiator, no scaffolding. So we can't just tell children, tell teachers to you know expose them to grade level content. I hear that a lot with reading. Just have them read grade level text. But if we don't provide resources and, and techniques for how to scaffold it and support it to make sure that those whole group lessons for children who are below grade level, we don't want it to be frustrating. We don't. We we want it. To, we want them to get some learning, but manage that frustration and manage those expectations so that they get some learning, but they you know aren't overwhelmed. 
that requires some finesse, and it's not in instructional programs. So we have to layer that in. And so a lot of the work I do now when schools feel like they have their phonics in place and they're doing a lot of this whole group, I will go in and look at what do we do during the lesson to meet the needs of the, the students who, if we're doing long vowels, they're still working on short vowels, or the students who already know what you're teaching, so they're not, you know, children who are frustrated or bored don't sit quietly and smile. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? We have to be realistic about And we want every minute to count. And what about our multilingual learners? So there are lots of things we can do during a whole group so that everybody gets something. But some of it requires a little bit different of what they're practicing or what have you. Some of it requires a little bit of support before they get to the lesson. Like if we're doing a decodable text in first grade and we're doing long vowels, and I have students who are still trying to master short vowels, that book's going to overwhelm them. So the day before, I have them listen to an audio recording of the book. All these decodables, almost all of them have audio recording, and they follow along. Right before the lesson, I'll just take maybe five or ten minutes and do an echo read with them of at least a portion of the book, and we'll talk about the big ideas. So that when they get to the whole group lesson, it's their third experience with the book. They can talk about the book. They can do a little bit of reading about the book. They can certainly write about the book, but it isn't an overwhelming experience for them. They can manage what's happening during that whole group. I've set them up for success. When we're rereading the book on subsequent days, I know that whole book might overwhelm them. I might have them practice fluency with just a page or two because I know they can handle that and I want them to learn something about that new skill but not overwhelm them. And then during small group, I really hit those skills they don't know yet that they should know and we really target those and do some intensive work to try to get them caught up. So it's happening on these two layers. That's when it really starts to work. Thank you for explaining that. I think that that is a place I've come to just in the last year or so, understanding that everybody needs to have to be taught grade level content. But like you said, with support, otherwise it's just not going to it's just going to feel like a waste of time for some of the kids. And then it's just going to be very boring for other kids. It's happening everywhere where there's these directives only use grade level content or complex text or only do this. And without the scaffolds in place, it's going to fail. What would you say for teachers who have, let's say they've got a, a group of kindergartners or let's say, let's say early first grade. So some kids are fluent readers, like they, they're doing really well. And then some kids are struggling with CBC. How do you challenge those advanced readers during those whole class lessons? So, yeah, so like when I do my lesson, I'm introducing a skill and I have my blending lines and that's a whole thing that I do with yeah. words, you know, new words and review words to extend the learning, you know, building that review and repetition, but I always have challenge words in those lines. Mm-hmm. When we read the text, I like my students to read, even if they're above level, read the text the first day so I can confirm they really have mastery. But on subsequent days when we're rereading the book, maybe we're rereading it to a partner and I'm listening in or what have you, I just have those above-level students read a different book during that time. They're not going to some other part of the room. They just have the book from small group that's more advanced. And so they're getting practice with what we've already taught. So that all has to be set up and make sure the resources are there and so on. When we do dictation, a lot of above-level readers are not above-level in spelling. Interesting how that works. Yeah. Yeah, they're at different places. So some of them exactly what you're doing with spelling is exactly what they need. So you really have to look at, you know, decoding and encoding differently for different students. They can be at very different places. So, you know, I I look at those adjustments and I work with teachers to start differentiating. It can be really overwhelming because it's not an instructional resource. So my suggestion has always been take a high impact routine like blending and differentiate that and work on that for, you know, maybe a month. 
and then take mm-hmm. another routine like dictation and differentiate that for maybe a month and, di- and so on and just slowly build the capacity throughout the year that these things become habit, how you yeah. approach your whole group lessons and they just become very natural and teachers will figure out what's easier for them to do and resources and all that because you want it to be very smooth and you don't want children running around. You just want everything there. It can be as simple as writing some, you know, if you're doing a sort, writing some additional multisyllabic words on the board and say, blue group, you need to add these words to your your sort. So yeah. there's some complex. Or it could be, you know, your red group, red group, I only want you to sort these four words, not 10 because that's going to over, you know, because that would overwhelm mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. But these four really important long A words, I want you to know. So just sort those and I'm going to check yeah. on, on that. We're going to do some work with them a little later. Not a big deal, but you just do it very naturally during the lesson. Yes. Thanks for making that so practical. Can you talk to us a little bit, um, closing out here, a little bit about your phonics program or is that, is that exactly your phonics program? I know your name is associated with Sadler Phonics. Is that correct? Yes, I'm the author of that. Okay. And I'm the consultant on the benchmark phonics, their the most recent stuff. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how long that program's been out and what do you think makes it stand out? So the sadly are from phonics to reading, um, it, it got all green on Ed Reports, which was a thrill. Oh, great. It's been out a few years and um, it's meant to be a really uh, efficient kind of a program where you know it doesn't have a ton of stuff it's really efficient and manageable and what have you but what i did when i created that is i looked at those 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails for my research and tried to unplug those obstacles so for example you know one of the biggest issues is a lack of review and repetition you know you teach a skill one week you do another week a skill the next week and what have you and that results in exposure focused learning and the learning begins to decay or slip away i wanted to correct that so after i introduce a skill i systematically build in application opportunities for the next four to six weeks okay. so all so that dna of the program is designed for mastery and checks for transfer and so okay. so a lot of those underpinnings of those 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails has been a has been adjusted you know the decodable text having high quality higher quality text that children want to read. Uh, they've recently added more decodable text because I said, I don't, there aren't enough. I want more. And so they added mm-hmm. more. So there are things that they, as we, as we um, uh, use it in schools, there are some modifications that, that I have, that I have made, you know, making sure that after teachers get the program in place, the next year we go in and we work on how to differentiate that more effectively. And mm-hmm. so those kinds of things. So it's been really, it's been really exciting to be able to, to provide a resource that's reflective of my work and my research. Um, and, you know, when we're doing decoupled text, we're, we're teaching vocabulary, we're doing rich comprehension, we're writing about it, we're using those writings to connect to our uh, other parts of our literacy block, like all of these things becoming habits and intertwined with the other resources teachers are using. That's my goal. Awesome. So are there, are there any projects you're working on that you're willing to talk about or able to share? Anything's coming well, I'm up? I'm actually writing a book uh, on differentiating phonics instruction. Yay! I spend, okay. I spent so much time talking about it. It's a really <laughs> complex topic. And I have these little you know handouts that I give. And so you know I've been so focused on, on doing that. I thought, well, if I just had a book I can give, that would be easier. <laughs> and if I can't be there at the school, the teachers will have a resource. So that's what I'm working on now. So that will be out sometime in 2023. Yay. I'm all right. Also, I'm, um, I'm also working with Benchmark on a set of new decodable texts. Okay. And um, they're my dream decodables. So I know we have to have these decodables that are instructional and what have you. I wanted decodables that feel like trade books. 
that are really mm-hmm. fun and engaging and fun and silly and about fascinating topics and, and all of that. And so I, I'm creating those with them that can be, you know, in your in your classroom library or it could be in book bags for kids or you could use them instructionally. So those are two projects I'm really excited about. That is very exciting. Well, I could have talked to you all day long, but I'm sure you have other things to do today. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I know people are going to come back to this and the show notes will have links to all your books and anything I can find online that, um, that people would appreciate. Thank you. So so thank you again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for today's episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 119. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.